Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Rehab Podiatrist podcast with me, Alex Murray. I am really excited today to be joined um, by a researcher that's published probably what I've what I've been calling probably one of the biggest uh, papers in foot and ankle biomechanics at the at the moment. Uh, just because I, my personal belief is that it's, it's going to have a huge impact on podiatric foot and ankle biomechanics. How how we we practice and, and particularly because for, for many years as a student clinician, as an educator, we've been trying to navigate lots of biomechanical theories and specifically the evidence and it's really confusing. And um, what uh, this researcher, uh, Anya Belling, has, has done is really sort of collated a lot of this evidence and given given us a, a narrative and a way to understand it and thinking about like the times I've gone through school where we were taught all of these different theories and they never really got put together. She's, she's managed to, um, to create a, an amazing, amazing paper that, that does kind of bring it all together and, um, and give us some structure, some structure going for, forward. So, uh, welcome Anya. Thank you for coming on the podcast and, and, and your, and your time. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me. That's fantastic. I'm happy to talk about research. <laughs> it, I really had to twist her arm. She it was like, do you want to talk about the paper? She was like, no. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> so before we dive in, obviously I've got, I've got questions. Yeah, you can, you probably detect my enthusiasm um, for the paper and talking about it. But before we jump in, can you talk a bit about your, your background, um, you, you know, where you've studied, what research you've been doing and how, how you ended up uh, at this point? Yes, um, I obviously I'm not a native speaker. I am originally from Germany, studying at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, though, at the moment. And ending up in Australia was a little bit of a journey for me. I did an undergrad in kinesiology and human movement science. I did a master's in sport performance analysis and wrote my thesis um, to some people in podiatry. It's probably already a big name, um, Dr. Ben Onig. Um, he did a lot on pronation. Um, I did my master thesis with him and then worked a little bit more on footwear um, development as well as on studies, everything regarded regarding the foot. And continued my journey now in my PhD at the University of Queensland. And I'm stuck with the foot and I love it <laughs> most of the times. <laughs> yeah, from from what I understand, there's, there's um, the idea is that, you, you know, as you're going through, you do you focus on different areas to give yourself a, a a bit of a wide breadth and a bit of experience, but you're just like nailed in on the foot and not letting go. Not letting go. No. Um, I think it started a little bit with mobility in general. I was always interested in sports and most kind of sports require you to move on two legs somehow, either to get to the pool. Even if you're a swimmer, you have to get there somehow. Um, you use your feet while swimming your legs. Um, running is one of the passions that I um, pursue and it somehow made sense to, yeah. to stick to the foot. <laughs> I have no excuse really. <laughs> Let's be absolutely well, I honest. Gonna, I was going to say when you start it, when you start with Ben O'Neill, like there's, it's yeah. Yeah. Good chance you're going to do the knee or the foot. Um, yeah. And yeah, for me, it's the foot. Yeah. So if we, if, if we dive in, so, like I said, release this paper. It's it's what I consider one of the most important papers because it's bringing all those biomechanical theories 
sort of together and reconciling them all together. Can you talk about like your paper, how, how you started writing this paper, what got you interested and, and sort of some of the, the key findings? Absolutely. You might have to stop me at some point when I get too excited. Um, the gist of the paper was to evaluate the different mechanisms that we still use in order to explain foot function. And why I started writing the paper was because I really went down a rabbit hole at the beginning of my PhD. Well, not just one rabbit hole, but multiple rabbit holes, because every single mechanism was kind of its own rabbit hole. Um, and I had really troubles understanding how these different mechanisms function and whether they still hold true. And the more I read, the less I understood at some point. So I really went from um, a simple graph where I had all my different names of the mechanisms on there and listed to a mind map, to um, another figure, to another table, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And at some point, um, my advisory team and myself, we just talked about it and we're like, we have to put this into some kind of structure to make sense of all of that. Um, because it seems to be a lot going, like there is a lot going on. Clearly, the paper is a long paper. It's a long read. <laughs> um, and I think it was part of, for me, for my PhD, as a good background, as a good foundation. And I realized that um, if I'm struggling that much to make sense of a lot of these mechanisms, um, I have to go back in time by sometimes more than 100 years to dig out the primary papers where people mentioned um, these mechanisms and theories. Um, it might make sense to have that all in one bigger piece of work where people can actually hopefully understand where things are coming from and where it's going from there. And that's the goal. Show a little bit where each mechanism kind of stems from and then developed and then hopefully where we are now like is there enough evidence that we can say this mechanism is actually holding true are there changes in the mechanism have we learned something or do we have to say this is pretty much it we tried for so many years in the end wanted to do is to see if we have to um, change some of the mechanisms and adjust um, what we thought is true and whether we or whether we can just take it as it is and say yeah this after all those years this is exactly what it is and this is how the foot functions and spoiler alert that is not how it works because <laughs> yeah, you're going on kind of the journey in a way that a lot of us go on in, in undergrad where they're like okay this is how the foot works and you've got we've got this theory we've got that theory and then what has sort of ended up happening is, is that, yeah, we get presented this evidence and, and a lot of the time it's like, oh, this evidence suggests that this mechanism doesn't work. This, this, this research suggests that actually this doesn't work. And then there kind of was also at the end of it, like a sense of that confusion. We never really kind of got to the bottom of it because we're at the same time we're learning, oh, we've got to learn about the skin. We've got to learn about, you know, we're doing a surgical class or, you know, all of a sudden we're learning about, you know, the actual injuries itself. And so it sort of all gets a bit, it gets a bit lost. So what I liked about the paper is that in a way as well, it, it, it kind of, it's a big debunker as well, because at the end of it, I guess I, to, to spoil the conclusion for those who haven't read it, it sort of, it found that actually there's not a lot holding up most of these theories. And it's very funny because I have a patient the other day who was a evolutionary biologist by, um, by training and, she was just sort of talking about some of this stuff and I'm like, oh, let me, let me tell you a bit about, you know, what we've discovered, this paper. And she was like, this makes sense. This is, this is what we've done evolutionarily, 
ev- evolutionarily wise for ages was make theories, never prove them, and then they just they just keep sort of holding true. I see, is it? Can we talk a bit more more about like yeah the conclusion and the and what 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 you what exactly you found? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can either talk about every single mechanism for hours <laughs> and every single conclusion that we came to in the end for every single mechanism, but um, you you summarize it really really well. It's in the end not a lot holds actually true. Um, so throwing them out completely might be very extreme in that sense um, to say like none of these mechanisms work at all but at the same time I think they were constructed and we these theories came about with a really with really good intentions but as so often good intentions don't really mean that um, it's always the best idea to follow up on all of these and act on them so sometimes I would say we found that most of these theories on a simplification and such a crude one that we do have to make sure we are all aware of that it is a simplification and the foot is highly complex. So we cannot just say it works like um, an arch spring or the windless mechanism is the only mechanism that can explain foot function. It's a combination of a lot of different things um, and that stems from how we once want to look at it Sometimes we want to look at every puzzle piece separately and then we have to put it back together. And I think that's where we are right now. All of those mechanisms don't seem to hold a lot of truth in terms of if we look at them separately. But then if we look at muscles, bones, bone shape, tissues, um, like passive structures like tendons, ligaments, cartilage, then we might get a better understanding finally and can look at it more holistically. And I think this is finally where we're at. We have seen so many simple mechanisms and they do not work on their own. But if we combine the pieces where we do see evidence and we take those pieces and put them back together into a, into the actual bigger puzzle and the bigger picture, that's when I hopefully, or I really, really hope that we get somewhere. Um, closer to the truth, whatever the truth at that moment is. And it's lovely that your clients are saying, yeah, it's, it, it makes sense. And especially from the evolutionary part, that's fantastic. I love to hear that people actually saying, yeah, finally we can test these things. We can see um, if our thought process um, is actually something that's happening in reality. Because mm. there's uh, like one of the notes that I made and, and it's sort of, talking with this with this patient as well there's almost kind of like a level of like colonialism to to the the assumption because like the key assumption like I, I just reading the paper and i'm like this goes back every single thing just kind of goes back to the assumption of the chimp foot which was from from what you've explained um again i'm always just being very aware of like not just explaining the paper to the researcher but what i took out of it was you know that it all just comes back to this this idea of we looked at a chimp and said well that's a primitive foot and we looked at a human with a higher arch and said well that's the that's the more evolutionary greater foot um so anyone with flat feet must be like more like a primitive chimp and everyone with a high arch higher arched foot that's a bit more stiff is more evolved so we must just make everyone have a higher arch like if you have a lower arch we need to make it higher and then it just it just seemed like a lot of biological determinism so you know how you're born or how it's structured will determine all the outcomes that simple exactly what you're referencing that simple um simplicity of it 
and then just trying to determine everything from just these one series of observations, essentially looking at a foot and saying, what's going to be a good foot or a bad foot? And then going, okay, and then trying to almost in a way, like all these theories were just kind of like just trying to justify that, that original simplistic uh, assumption. Uh, really, it's, it's, that's, that's what it is. I mean, would you agree with that as, a, as an interpretation after, from, from your experience actually reading and writing this? Absolutely. Like, I think that was the most shocking part, that there was so little to it. I thought someone had a, <laughs> it's, it, it sounds absolutely um, basic, right? Someone was mm -hmm. looking at humans and at some species that they thought are primitive in a sense that they're less evolved. And we are kind of the pinnacle of evolution <laughs> because we're mm -hmm. able to walk upright. Um, I don't know, maybe in... 5,000 years from now or a million years from now, there are people that walk differently than what we define walking right now. And they think how primitive in 2023, people were walking on two legs. Look what we can do now. Um, they had awkward feet. <laughs> um, we don't know, but like, that is something that I found really um, funny and sad at the same time, because there was like, as you said, there was a good and a bad side. That, and that's how easy it was for um Apparently, the researchers at that time who said, yeah, um, shrimp feet seem to be less evolved, therefore bad, and that equals flat feet. So mm -hmm. everyone who happened to have flatter feet was yeah, more primitive, less evolved, not, not the pinnacle of the evolution from a, from a gate perspective, apparently. Um, and that is something that seemed so straightforward. And the following, or researchers in the same I want to say around the same time they they supported that and then from there on it just spiraled um the rigid lever and mobile adapter theory came from that or stems from that that when they looked at the human foot they said oh look in the beginning when you land when you have some kind of footfall this is where the foot um, needs to adapt to the to the ground whether it's uneven or there are rocks or anything so yeah you have to absorb energy and then obviously if you want to walk and everything you have to push off kind of like a rigid lever um, and if you have flat feet, you can't do that because flat feet cannot really be modulated into a rigid lever and they also cannot really adapt because they're just flat. Um, this is something that is just the underlying assumption of all the other mechanisms that come from there. So we have the flat foot is bad, the arched foot, higher arches even better, um, which we by now finally know that is not the case. High arches can cause a lot of troubles too. Um, and people just spiraled um, from there and took the took it to the next level with the adapter, the mobile adapter and the rigid lever theory. And then from there, every other mechanism tries to explain that and tries to prove this is how it really works. And none of it really worked. <laughs> Back to square one. <laughs> well, I think that that's where I think I liked the, the, the graphic so well that you put in where it's literally just, you know, the idea at the top where where that idea went and then literally every other theory kind of just went back to the mobile adapter um rigid lever theory and it sort of never no one ever really went back even further and i, I think that's such a powerful when we talk about like sociology that's such a powerful example of sociology and healthcare it's not always people always sort of think it's something we've got to either address or thinking it's about the individual but so much of it is also about societal messaging and how that's impacted not just clinical practice but our, our research absolutely I like, I like what you said um where you were like 
not throwing away everything. Because I think on the first pass, when I was reading through this paper, I was like, throw it all out, burn it all down. Everything's based on, on terrible science. It's all <laughs> assumptions. And I, and I was like, this is really validating from, from a perspective of, you know, someone who's struggling with this and not seeing, seeing usefulness in some of the things that we're incidentally doing, but not seeing any benefit to the theory behind it. I was like, great, burn it down. But then what what you're saying, and this is sort of what I started to see on on second and third sort of read through, obviously reading reading it again uh, to familiarize myself for for our chat today. And yet you started started to pick up things about I think the most prominent one was the windless mechanism, where actually there is some truth to the windless mechanism in 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 the sense that it is uh, a a mechanism that does help that still holds true, but not by itself, uh, in terms of that it's still there, but it's working alongside the muscles where I think it was, yeah, Hicks was saying that, um, you know, it was the thing that held the arch up and it made it stiff. Actually, I think you know, as you were finding and have said it actually, when you're in that position, the windless mechanism is occurring, but the plantar fascia, plantar fascia can actually stretch uh, as well in that position. Uh, can you talk more, more about, about that and how that, how you're seeing that, um, work together with with other sort of theories and research absolutely i think that the the windless mechanism and the arch spring those two sections of the papers were the most rewarding ones i think to write but also the, the trickiest because they are so, so nuanced i feel and they're intertwined um you can't talk about the other uh, well one of them without the other kind of it's um they they go hand in hand um even though we're talking about the foot there's a hand reference in here <laughs> um <laughs> It is the windless mechanism made sense from a perspective in a static environment or in a passive environment. But as soon as we looked at um, dynamic studies that looked at the windless mechanism, tried to investigate how it works in walking and running, etc., there was not a lot to it in terms of it doesn't fully work like Hicks described it, that once you flex your toes, um, that the plantar fascia is kind of... Um, wrapping around the metatarsal heads um, and pulls the arch higher, like closer together, the heel closer to the uh, metatarsals. But it seems to be it's it's so, so sensitive to loading as well as to the motion that is happening. And it's, of course, not just 2D like in the figures that I have in the paper, but it's a 3D movement. So it can, there can be a lot more going on than we can just see in a in one plane of movement. So it's definitely not just one thing um, solution to it and we say this is what's happening and that's it and the windless is one of those that seems to be um, as I mentioned uh, intertwined with the arch spring that means the apneurosis that we talk about the fascia is not just winding around the metatarsal heads a little bit but also stretching there is some kind of give in the structure so we have this combined spring mechanism if you want to call it that, and this kind of, and this windless at the same time, and sometimes it stretches, sometimes it winds at the same time, and we have finally the technologies to look at all of that, which was not something that was possible 100 years ago. So the windless does occur, but differently than what Higgs described it, but it's more nuanced as well as there are different aspects of the windless happening at different time points throughout gate. Dr. Lauren Welty, um, she did a fantastic um, job on looking in her PhD a lot into the arch and especially especially the windless mechanism. Um, and 
I can only point everyone towards those figures and how she explained the dynamic behavior of the windless mechanism in the arch. Um, and when you have an enhanced windless mechanism and when you have one that is more purely like a spring um, behaving, it is fantastic work. And it shows that it's not just a windless and not just an arch spring. It's a combination. And to piece that apart is really tough work. And we do see the foot adapts to the function, to the needs that we set it out to um, to go through to the motion. That that's exactly I, I one of the one of the notes I put down before here was exactly that the energetic function of the foot, and you sort of leading into that exactly, which is when we're looking at some of these mechanisms, we're looking at it like you said, you know, let's say the windlass is a static position and saying oh look you know we lift the toe up because that, that was the test it was like we lift the toe up arch goes up that must be how it works and that must be the only thing and we've one of the things that's always been lacking I, I found when we talk about the foot we talk about uh, really a lot of things in podiatry for many years was we we lost the word adaptation it was it is what it is and it's always and it's never going to improve or it's never going to get worse uh, we're not putting making the foot do something and it and it adapts to what's happening it just it, it's very much like a car it is what it is you know if it's if it's got bad joints if you've got bad shock absorbers your tires are shot like it is what it is it's not going to suddenly when we start to to put it through its paces those tires are going to magically put some more tread on them and I think that's probably the, the thing that you, that that sort of jumped out. One of the things that jumped out to me as well is that it's a case of, well, we've got a lot of this evidence to say not only is it complex and very individual, there's also a level of adaptation. So what we ask the foot to do, the, to a certain degree, it will change change its its, fun, its function. I think there was a, a, a reference here as well. I mean, obviously, we've got the reference to the uh, the spring and dampener findings from, from Luke Kelly's lab. Um, from from a number of years ago, there's also a reference to the foot will will act more like a spring and act more like a shock absorber uh, when it's required. Is can you can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, um, I think that is the really tricky part. But um, with the spring itself, um, I don't know if I could fully say that the foot is a spring, I would definitely not make that statement um, or behaves like a spring. Um, it can be adjusted because obviously the foot has all these active structures, all the muscles in there, and we can control them. We can control the external and the intrinsic muscles. Um, some people who have better, I want to say, understanding of and knowledge of their body and trained to listen in and tune into their body might have a better understanding of what's going on and how they modulate um, and move their feet. Um, but in terms of shock absorption um, and a spring for the foot, it is a tricky one. Um, as soon as you say the foot absorbs shock um, in every landing or footfall, people are going to take that message and run with it again. And here we go, we have another mechanism <laughs> um, mm. that we have to debunk maybe in a couple of years from now on again. Um, so making a strong statement like that, I would be very careful. Um, mm. the foot has the ability to absorb shock. Otherwise every single step during running that we do, um, it would vibrate all the way up to our brains and, and 
and the head and everything, it wouldn't be very comfortable, I would argue, if we weren't, were unable to absorb any kind of shock. But to what degree and how exactly we can modulate everything, I don't know, to be absolutely honest. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that is the honest answer. I well, don't I think. And I think that's, well, I mean, that's, we don't want to make the same mistakes exactly what you said that we've done before, where we've tried to look and have a outcome and go, oh, look, this is what's happening. This is, this is, this is the answer in the face of, um, face of uncertainty. One of the things that I think about is I think about like the movement variability lit literature, uh, which sort of highlights and sort of says, well, actually there's a lot of variation. There's a lot of um, different ways to move. The The classic example has been the blacksmith hammer where you hit, they're, they're hitting and doing a very similar motion, but it's taking a very slightly different path each time. So there's a natural level of variation. And the suggestion from that literature is, is that when we're doing more of one or the other, so in, in, this, in this case, it would be when we're too stiff or when we're too mobile, that's potentially more likely where we're going to have problems adapting because it's, it's, we're at these extremes rather than in the middle. And I guess the other side of it is as well as we'll also potentially see the people that aren't adapting more than the ones that are. And I guess I, I, I wonder how much when we're sort of talking about this and, and we're trying to make a statement of, does it work like this? Does it work like that? What's the optimum? Whether it's more of a case of a bit more ethereal in a concept of whether they're adapting or not, whether they're coming in and we're seeing that there's a problem or not, and really then potentially trying to not say, okay, this is working this way or that way. It's saying, well, maybe they might need to be more mobile. Maybe they might need to be more stiff. Maybe they need to be more mobile for this period of time while they recover. Maybe they need to be more, more stiff. This is kind of like how I'm sort of thinking about it and trying to sort of operate without that certainty. I guess, does that, does that kind of sit comfortably saying, <laughs> saying that? Or, or hearing that, I should say, from your perspective? Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> you can disagree, absolutely disagree. Um, which I think makes it so interesting because when we talk about movement variability and I would include coordination in that and coordination variability, um, I think there, there is, it is such an important topic um, and it's such a difficult one. It's an entire can of worms that I haven't touched in this paper at all, on purpose. <laughs> um, it's another rabbit hole to fall into. Um, and I think it has so much merit in terms of you want to be able to control your movement, but you do not want to use the exact same path every single time. If you think about it like you have a machine that's running the same path like up and down constantly, you slowly just like work yourself into the ground with that. If you have one rolling pin going always over the, the exact same surface, you slowly wear it down. So you always wanna, you want to have some variability in order to, I almost wanna say, keep it fresh. Give the area that you have been using previously some time to recover because we do adapt and we're back to adaptability. Um, but whenever this variability is too large, we might get into some kind of range of motion or some kind of movement that might be too far away from what we consider healthy 
or good for us at that moment. The problem is where do we set the boundaries? And I think that mm. is a very individual question again. A gymnast obviously had a large range of motion. Um, if I do the splits, I might not be able to walk tomorrow <laughs> because I definitely pulled a hamstring or two. Um, but for other people, um, the variability is, they, they can handle it. And maybe this is where the, what you said was like a stiffer um, movement net or a stiffer foot or a stiffer um, structure has to come into play. I would maybe call it stronger instead of stiffer. So with a certain um, range of motion or variability that it's large, you also have to make sure you know how to use that and how to control it. And as long as you have the control over it, I would right now argue you you are in a safer space than if you have no control over your variability in your movement. If you can steer it a little bit, that makes it probably um, less drastic. And that, I'm going out a limb here, that probably relates then to a muscular control and central nervous control, like um, how you know how to use your body in space, as well as to strength. Can you... Mm go to a specific range of motion without losing control over that movement. So are your muscles, for example, strong enough um, in order to maintain your body in a equilibrium that is healthy for you? Um, and that is probably interesting for injuries, um, which variability is too much, not too much. And how is that coupled maybe with muscular strength? With um, are, um, Do you have any issues with your joints in general? arthritis maybe that's not the best then um and i'm not super familiar with the coordination um, variability or movement variability literature i'm sure there was a lot in the last few years out there because it is something that is highly discussed in the biomechanics field especially for injuries um because it is such a hot topic mm. but it's almost never discussed in podiatry like i i came across it years ago from from a physio you know not and it was sort of even then seen as sort of like oh there's an interesting topic and it's kind of leading to some ideas but we've had you know limited engagement beyond the basic principles at least in, in, in my experience sort of reading it but that's such a interesting such a really interesting encapsulation because one of the other training i have is is a, is a strength and conditioning coach and this is kind of exactly our focus where we look at the individual, we look at the task, we go, okay, how are you able to do it? Do you first of all have control? The basis of every strength and conditioning program is, are you able to control this movement? Are you doing what you need to do? If someone's you know, going to do a deadlift and they're actually doing a Jefferson, it's like, whoa, 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 you know, you, you're not understanding the difference. And if you go to lift a hundred kilos and you don't have that control to determine the difference between an RDL, a deadlift, uh, a Jefferson, you know, the, a straight leg deadlift, like, or you've got all of these different ways of doing it and you don't have that adaptation to handle when we take the rails off or if, you know, if I turn around and go help someone else and don't catch you, you could hurt yourself because that, that straight leg deadlift is very different to a, you know, what you'll need from a deadlift and you've only practiced the deadlift. So like, I see a lot of that, um, that crossover where we can yeah. look at the foot exactly the same way and say, you know, what are yeah. tasks are you doing? Are you adapted? Do you have the control? And 
that sort of creates also when we, I mean, I've always been a big uh, proponent of, of patient-centered care and, and looking at the individual and treating the individual. And I guess what we're sort of highlighting here from a from a bi pure biomechanics perspective, because that's always been the antithesis to, in in a way, person-centered care. Not not ex not intentionally, but it's kind of always looking at these simplistic mechanisms and saying, hey, um, we look at the foot this way, and this determines what our outcome is. And then when you look at the patient, it kind of it's the opposite to that because we're kind of adapting to that individual, not this sort of set plan. What we're really sort of finding is that actually we got to use the biomechanics knowledge the, to determine what we have to do for that individual. And it's much, much more about their foot, uh, nor less about their foot as much as the demands that we're placing on it and then watching then how it, how it shifts, how it moves. And then I'm guessing where we're sort of leading to is if we're going to intervene it's probably going to be more on that individual basis. You see a flat foot. Okay, big whoop, it's a flat foot. What, what's their problem? What are the tasks that they're doing? Are they adapting? Um, getting them to do something and then saying, okay, how do, how do you respond to that? And then where can we sort of change that to help them adapt rather than saying good, bad? Um, that, that's sort of how I'm sort of piecing it all together. And, and I'm specifically sort of explaining this because I guess uh, I want to get your thoughts on on that and again not sort of saying go out on a limb and, and confirm that's the way but i guess at the moment i feel like that's probably the better way to sort of operate with a level of uncertainty well, i mean obviously at some point it'd be great if we were able to like 3d scan someone's foot and go and you'd have the shape i think there is some research in in midfoot osteoarthritis i think i've seen some papers from Meredith lithgow i haven't had a really in-depth read but there are some sort of potential correlations for individuals with midfoot osteoarthritis there might be a foot pattern there might be a way of them them walking and moving that makes that more likely that we can specifically alter but until that point we're sort of operating a bit more on that uncertainty thoughts agree disagree from a patient perspective i obviously welcome every kind of more personalized approach <laughs> um, from a research perspective um I immediately get a headache because I would think, oh, now <laughs> every single participant is its own case study. Um, how the hell do we make now any kind of statements about all the billions of people on this planet? Does that mean everyone is different and we need to find a super unique solution for every single person, which makes it almost impossible, like looking for the needle in the haystack that is sometimes an incredibly time consuming, expensive um, treatment. Not everyone maybe has that option. But of course, as a patient, you want to have treatment or um, even a diagnosis, you know, um, it should come from a personalized approach like look at me as an individual and see how do i move what do i need what do i want to do what do i want to achieve with a treatment or something so yeah i would say a personal personalized approach is amazing um in terms of the foot function how to get there i think we have finally the technologies to look and support this individualized approach from a science perspective we have the 3D scans to look at external shapes. We have biplanar video radiography to look at like an X-ray scan, but think about that like a video now. So we actually see what every single bone is doing throughout that movement, which is absolutely amazing that we finally can make statements about that. Is it 
does it make sense to image every single person that comes into a clinic or a practice um, and has a little bit of a flat foot? Probably not. But we can learn from that and we can use these technologies to inform at least a bigger picture in the beginning. I think that is great. And then, yes, um, not every flat foot needs to be treated. Great, you have a flat foot. Moving on. Um, <laughs> um, we do know now it's not just good or bad, and we don't label it that way anymore, which is already a huge step um, ahead um, from where we were before. Um, I think putting those different technologies that we have, the new approaches that we have, let it be EMG, um, imaging, ultrasound, um, knowledge about muscles, um, passive tissue, knowledge about individual morphologies, how do specific bone shapes and after accidents, for example, change your movement pattern or arthritis. You um, gave us the example of midfoot osteoarthritis. It's such a debilitating um, disease where people just, they lose their mobility and then it spirals and a lot of other issues follow down the road if they can't be mobile anymore because it hurts too much to walk or to be active. So if we know that, or we do know arthritis affects a lot um, of the internal structures in terms of bone changes, in terms of shape might be happening. So how does that affect the way you move and how can you treat that? Um, and if we are able to see these things now, observe them, measure them. And I think this is where it comes into play and um, that we do know it's not just, and not every foot does the perfect mechanism what we learned um, and follows that pathway. It has to be individual and then also not every mechanism is perfect in the first place. So we adjust everything that we learned and try to go from this is the general understanding to what works for this individual. And I think your background with um, strength and conditioning is probably a huge advantage because you know more than just one field and you can take the best of every single field. <laughs> I guess what I'm drawing out out of that as well is that we're we're learning about these more slowly getting more individualized or more focused down from here's how the foot works to here's how the foot works in these specific conditions here's how the foot works in you know with these kinds of patterns when we can now start to like get that get more of that information so from the perspective of yeah, treating and managing foot conditions, potentially it's going to be about not just looking at the individual uh, themselves and all the context and all the other things that we know, but also, you know, when we look at the research, it's not looking at, at a paper and saying what works for midfoot osteoarthritis and saying, here's the treatment plan. It's an orthotic, it's an injection, it's a this, and you follow this. It's going to be kind of looking that bit deeper and saying, okay, how do we know that midfoot osteoarthritis might make someone move and change? And then the, the follow on from that would be, how does then that, how can we change that? Or what do we see? works in helping that do we see uh, having to change that new way that they're moving actually result in a, in a in a better outcome like we can start to get more of that nuanced information for each individual sort of condition and then be able to, be able to apply that is that, that's sort of what you're what you're getting at yeah absolutely and i think it would be really interesting for me as a as a researcher who doesn't work with patients and i don't see um whether some of these um mechanisms if or some of the treatments you know work anecdotally or if they work on nine out of ten people who come and see you um, so 
taking some of these approaches, applying them, and then seeing how do people move after? Do they, did they change? Did they not change? Um, can we find the bigger picture here? I think that is, that is in theory what research should do, right? We should inform clinical practice outcome products, um, whether this is a shoe, an orthotic, um, or yeah, we should like research is there for the people as well. We're not just up in space and do this just for fun because ideally every researcher wants it to be used, right? What we research, what we find. So it's nice and dandy to have a fancy research paper, but if no one <laughs> uses it or even reads it, um, we don't get anywhere with that additional knowledge. So I think taking it to the patient, applying it, see what really works then and how these theories, how the mechanisms, how the technologies can be applied how much personalized is necessary and what is too much and an overkill maybe as well. Um, mm. This is really, this is amazing. I think this is the dream for every single researcher if their research gets to that point at some point in time. I guess I, I'm always an advocate for what I, what I would probably call like a clinician researcher or like a, <laughs> like a, Essentially, like I, I, the way sort of I, I think about patients is the, you know, highly individuals, uh, high, highly individual responses or highly individual presentations and therefore highly individual responses to therapies. And I guess I always sort of encourage people to sort of look at it from the perspective of like a case study and say, okay, so you have this patient, what do we know is out there? in terms of information what do we know that's out there in terms of how they might move or how they how they might respond to treatments then i sort of say here's my hypothesis i think from absorbing all this information from the patient and from the research this should help and this is the potential outcome we implement we you know we talk to the patient we say we agree they we implement it and then we see the outcome and then we kind of go back and we think okay how does that outcome then start the next study and start the next sort of point and that's sort of how i encourage people to think because i think it's it's always about not just going in and doing something and saying this is the outcome we should have gotten because we're very certain it's like adapting and then we start to create a new hypothesis and then why why do we think this happened and then what do we do from here and I guess that's sort of, I mean, from a research perspective, that would be as, as a researcher, kind of, like you said, like a headaches and getting wild. But from a, from a clinician perspective, if we're sort of starting to think that way in that sort of more systemated way, how we treat individuals, is that, is that sort of something that would sit probably a bit better with you there other than us trying to figure out what that mechanism <laughs> is and then just, just apply it, you know? <laughs> Um, yes, uh, I, I could, I could just be like, thank God. Yes, please do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think this is, um, it's probably the approach, um, applying the scientific approach about creating a hypothesis, trying to test it and see afterwards, did it work? Did it not work? If it didn't work, why did it not work? Because I ignored five other structures. Did we just try to get this person, um, to move away um, from their previous pattern and trying to force them into a pattern that might not be natural for that person. Um, did we do that by orthotics um, and just gave them the orthotics and they might not be, um, and the person doesn't wear it. Or so maybe orthotics are not the right way um, for that person. So you, okay, that's a problem. That's why it doesn't work. Let's try something else. Let's try gait retraining. Let's try 
um, strengthening. Let's try um, whatever it is. Um, but I think this is the scientific mind frame that a lot of clinicians, I don't want to say are lacking, because I think there are plenty of people out there that do have that. But it is maybe sometimes time constraints in an everyday routine or when you are just, you know, running from one patient to the next because it's very busy. Um, that doesn't maybe allow for that. There might be some systematic issues um, that there is not enough time for these things. But I think applying science to an everyday approach that can help a lot. And then from as a scientist, all the case studies might are necessary and interesting, but then combining that to make sure that we can make informed decisions about a cohort of people where we can say patients on average seem to get better with this. Maybe it makes more sense to investigate that in even greater detail um, That so that we learn even more. Averages are never great, <laughs> I think. Um, oh, I've been talking about aver averages for years. Exactly. And I think um, we, we still fall into that trap that um, we average everything too fast as researchers. Um, we don't really look in the individuals. And if someone looks a little bit funny, it's, it's immediately an outlier. But typically, I think finally, where the scientists finally came around and researchers is like, you look at the outlier because that's the interesting person. You're like, oh, mm. they did something else. Why? How? how? How did that happen? Um, and this is because that might be the person that show up, uh, that will show up in your clinic. And it's like, something is different. Why is that? And you look at the literature and you're like, yeah, you're definitely different, but science never said anything about the outliers because they're excluded. Mm. Um, so I think it's a two-way street. Um, as researchers, we have to do a lot of work on the individual part because that is has been neglected for so long. And that is probably also why a lot of these mechanisms hold true for such a long time or were not debunked in that sense. Because on average, if someone is going left and someone is going right, on average, they're all going straight. So, but they are clearly not. <laughs> so, um, the O'Neill um, so paper, I think, like 2018. Problem. Yeah, exactly. Shows us exactly. Um, um, that is a problem. Um, and we mm. do know this. And it, it takes years to change that, though. Um, and it probably is the same with like the clinical practice. There are so many amazing clinicians out there who question and learn and read papers and learn even more and have such a thorough understanding, but not everyone does it. And it takes time until it gets everywhere. Um, I think we are at that time. It slowly yeah. trickles with through the different ranks. <laughs> It's funny because in, in, in my other podcast to sort of bring something in and it's funny because I say this and then that the episode I'm talking about won't be released probably for another month and a half, two months. Um, but we just had a chat yesterday and we were talking about how clinicians potentially can sort of fall into this idea of being a service rather than a consultancy. And this idea that we have to work in a certain way, we have to do a certain thing, we have to reach certain outcomes, we have to, you know, do the assessment, and then we have to give a, a specific diagnosis, and then we have to tell them exactly how it's going to work and how they're going to respond. And uh, I, I have no idea where this sort of came from. I have no idea if that's a complete encapsulation of what's exactly happening. But it's interesting because I definitely do see this kind of idea of we should do this or we should do that. Whereas, yeah, one of the most sort of freeing things in my clinical practice has been, you know, this sort of approach and it's sort of shifting from 
um, a service base to a consultancy base where it's like someone's coming in and we're sort of providing ideas, thinking about it, you know, in, in like, I, I hate to say project management involve corporatization into this, but there's a <laughs> level of like, you know, we've got to prove, you know, we've got to prove a concept or we've got something. So it might be like, I, I had a patient where, you know, we went, uh, and I, and I sort of took this from some of the patellofemoral pain literature with, with Barton, uh, talking about it where. You know, he's like, well, what if we just put tape on and then get them to squat? Does their symptoms improve? Yeah. Okay. So th there's probably something there we can do mechanically for this individual. And what do we know? We found out in people who had more mobile feet, uh, more flexible feet. Um, and what do we know? Doing something that tried to hold them together a bit more helped that. And we can test that with this potentially with this sort of tape. And so like, yeah, that, that sort of really started that whole hypothesis test and if uh, i think you know if we start looking at ourselves as as consultants exactly the same way i mean you know no one goes into oncology and expects or goes into you know the hospital and expects the the the, the doctor to roll up and be like oh i know exactly what this is I've seen this before um but we do it in musculoskeletal medicine with very little information we, we ask people to, to to put the chips down and say i know exactly what this is and it's 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 quite funny the yeah yeah the question i'd have for you though go a little bit left oh. of that because <laughs> <laughs> you said don't throw the don't throw the baby out with the bathwater don't throw out all these ideas no, and these don't, theories. Don't. keep um, the baby keep the baby in the water keep, um <laughs> it's just look at it differently and and, and and use the the ideas differently let's say we've got a clinician that has been applying these theories for a very long period of time I can think of many, uh, that, that, <laughs> and then we're getting a level of success in the face of this paper sort of saying, look, you know, it doesn't have scientific validity. Uh, these, these ideas, they're not working probably the way that we think they are, but the outcome that you have gotten from implementing treatments on the basis of this theory has resulted in, in, you know, the, the outcomes are, are somewhat positive or in some cases, very positive. What would you say to those clinicians, like I said, in light of this paper, with this information and how they can keep practicing without that sort of potentially that first interpretation, especially my first interpretation, which was throw it all out, burn it all down. Like what, what would you say to those people? I feel like I have to be very careful how I phrase this now. <laughs> I, put, uh, I just realized how intense this, 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 this question is. And I'm just like, let's be super helpful. Let's talk to these people and like how we do it. But I just realized that's very intense. Yeah, I, I would, it is Sorry. really tricky because in, in, in the end, no, no, it's, a, it's an absolutely fair question, right? Because I think what you sometimes wonder also as a patient is like, if I'm feeling better, does that justify the means? So whatever you do to me, as long as I feel better, is that, is that the only goal? So mm. give me any kind of tape, tape me from head to toe. If I feel great after, fine, we're going to go with that. Um, I almost want to say, as long as it works, good for the patient, great. But part of the problem is it might be an anecdotal, a one in a, in, I don't know how many people you're seeing, it might work for some, yes. Um, it might not work at all for others. And if you keep applying the, the same things that on, I'm going to go back to the on average, where no 
evidence as why this is working, you're applying something blindly without really knowing why does it work for that person? Because we, we don't know why things are working because the foot shouldn't work like this based on the evidence <laughs> from science. So the application, how you treat it works, but why this is working, we just don't know then. Um, and that I think leaves a lot of potential for going um, for going down the wrong way, maybe, where we do something um, where we have no real justification why we're doing it. And I'd honestly, as a patient, that would worry me at the same time. If I ask my my healthcare provider um, that moment, like, why are we doing this? And the person was like, I don't really know. There's no evidence, but it seems to work. I don't know how safe I feel at that moment either. Um, there's no real justification for it. Um, but yeah, it seems to be that some of those um, approaches, because the way we treat it um, might be a, how do I say that? It might, the treatment approach might work, but the reasoning why it's working, um, and we explain it with a, let's say, a mid-tarsal locking mechanism. The mechanism is not true, but the treatment might still be valid. That might be a, another case why it can work. So I think that is where I don't want to put... Um, I feel like I'm literally jumping out of a window right now here um, on, of the, I don't know, hundredth floor. Um, no parachute, nothing. I really... I, I'm like, I don't know. As a patient, yes, I want to get better. But as a scientist, I'm like you can apply something blindly and only because it works a few times you're like yep it's working and the mechanism is because of this because that's what a few papers in the 19th um, century said what it is if we know that the mechanism doesn't exist mm. then the treatment might be working but not because of this mechanism i think i think that's uh i think you you sort of putting words to kind of what my intuition is, which is, and what I'm sort of taking from that is we're just separating the treatment from the mechanism and we're saying, yeah. okay, great. It's great that you have this, um, this treatment that does work. And, and potentially I think as well, you know, it could just go back to that, that scientific sort of place because we are operating in, in a lot of cases without evidence, without a, without a strong evidence base, but it probably then just goes back to that hypothesis model. Cause I think, potentially the biggest issue here is operating with a false sense of certainty and saying this will work. And I guess that's where I see a lot of people come in for second and sometimes third opinions on orthotics because someone's just gone, this will work this way. I've done it. Here you go. Off you go. Um, and I wonder, you know, how many people keep thinking, oh, I must have cured that patient. Uh, and they come in and it's sort of a case of, oh, okay, I can see that hasn't worked and we haven't tested it. And potentially it's just about more of an informed consent i mean because that's that's what i've been doing for years you know when i intervene we sort of go we don't know exactly how you're going to respond but we're going to piecemeal this along the way we're going to test we're going to trial sometimes you might need to take a leap of faith and say hey and some patients go i want to take that leap of faith uh some patients go nah 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 i'll go somewhere else where you know i might have to go the slower more loopy path uh around or, or you know i'm happy to to wait and see and I think, I think I, that's I, that's exactly mm. it. Sorry for interrupting. Please continue. No, I just keep no, nodding. No, no, <laughs> like, yes, no, yes, no, yes. no. Please enthusiastic agree because I'm just sort of sitting here going, this is how I'm doing it. I'm just like, God, I'm like, I'm just ready to be slammed and just being like, you're, you're wrong. Because, but it is, it is so tricky operating with, with uncertainty. And I guess 
that's sort of when I look at sort of the senior clinicians, um, you know, one of the, that's one of the things that I, that I see is that there's a, there's a humbleness, there's a, um, level of, well, this is what we know. This is what we don't know. Let's just carefully test and trial. And I think, so I think how, I wonder how much of that just goes back to that, that identity of needing to feel like we're fixing people and, and be those sort of people rather than being that, that sort of consultant. And in, in a way, I, I feel like we could care better and show people we care more being that consultant and talking with them and, and, and validating uncertainty in that rather than being the clinician that just says, oh, you got this, let's do this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, from a, I, I would add to that as a researcher um, who doesn't do any clinical work with patients, that there is this trap about, of course, if you say I'm 100% certain that this is going to happen, um, which you can never say in science, obviously, <laughs> but you, you're very inclined to, first of all, because it sells. Um, it's a great selling point for your research. You say, we found this. We can confirm that this is exactly how, it's, how we thought it will be. And, but there's always this level of uncertainty in there that it might not work for everyone. It works only for that small population that you were looking at, only under these specific conditions. Um, and then you have to take that and apply it in the real world. And it will work differently there. And then you have work with different patients and other people and um, different ages, different body types, different backgrounds, different hopes and dreams that these people want to do with the treatment or what they're comfortable with. Um, and maybe also what they believe is true and not true that you as a clinician directly have to engage with <laughs> um, mm. and either have to convince them, please try it. Um, we've seen really good outcomes with that treatment. Or you can say it worked in a few people. Do you want to give it a try? And it's up to the patient then maybe also to say, how comfortable do I feel with that? And I think this is something, um, this uncertainty in that, that you um, are not the person who knows it all as a researcher for sure not um, but maybe also as a clinician that you have or can say to your patient we are not 100% certain it seems to be working for some people or for others and um, this is the, the these are the pros these are the cons um, I, and I think this is in research as well as probably as from a patient perspective whenever I had to go and see clinicians I appreciated that but of course it is tedious <laughs> because all of a sudden um, all your fears <laughs> that you carry um, with you, they just bubble up to the surface and you you want to have the one pill that cures it all. You want to have mm. that quick fix and go back and do yoga and play volleyball and go running a marathon without being sore the next day and without having trained, of course, because that's the idea, right? You want to run the perfect marathon time without training with, in, in a like personal best <laughs> and not be sore the next day. Um, mm -hmm that's not how we work and i think that level of uncertainty um, is really hard to deal with from a professional perspective at least um, it is the hardest part about this paper as well that we said we now have all those mechanisms that don't fully work um, that we had to adjust um, and we were able to adjust with all the amazing research that came out in the last years and all this amazing um, groundbreaking ideas that people came up in the 1920s and 30s without having any of that insight that we do have now. Um, and we still can say with 100% certainty, this is what it is. 
it's terrifying sometimes. <laughs> and then mm. what do you, how do you give people hope? People who read that paper and in the end are like, now so what? Everything is wrong. So what do I do now? Thanks for nothing. Um, kind of like you, you, you have to offer not necessarily an, a solution, but at least say, this is what we do now, how it does not work. Where do we go from here? And I think that is true from a scientist perspective as well as from a clinician. You can't just say, oh yeah, your feet, I'm sorry looks pretty bad <laughs> you, mm. you come up with potential solutions and then it's it takes an entire village an entire society to work it out right um with the patient with the researchers scientists clinicians um medical staff in general it takes everyone <laughs> to make it work there's there's a quote that i've um that i uh think about a lot uh, when, when I talk about and, and, and consider biomechanics and it's that uh, it's by Greg Lehman and he says biomechanics disproves biomechanical theories and, I, yeah. and it's 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 great in the sense that because I think what, what's also underlying it as well and, and sort of what's been so fantastic about this discussion is that I'm talking to a biomechanics researcher I'm talking to someone who's who's this is their their bread and butter their masters they're on their PhD and it's so interesting because there is this idea, especially in podiatry, that, you know, you're looking at biomechanics or you're, you know, biomechanics focus, you're looking at forces and things. And then to have a discussion where it's, where we're talking about the nuances of patient-centered care, looking at individuals, dealing with uncertainty, all of these things that, that, you know, I've, I've been talking about, but more from a, you know, a, a, you know, what's seemingly a more airy sort of fairy, ooh, you know, not hard science component of uh, clinical care. It's kind of very, very funny to, and also just kind of nice to have that perspective from a, from come from a biomechanics and say, well, actually we do need to deal with this. This is the reality of the application of biomechanical theories. This is the reality of, 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 um, working with human bodies. And I, and I guess when I, when you're sort of talking about how do you deal with people where they're, you know, that exact point of burn it all down or everything's wrong, where do we go from here? So much of it is potentially just because they are reading just pure biomechanics. And when we sort of zoom out that just that little bit further, we see, well, actually the answers are kind of right there about where we can go, but it does involve kind of moving away from what we think is biomechanics to, really kind of more what I'd probably say is more like applied biomechanics, right? Like, you, you know, this is what happens when we apply it in the real world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think biomechanics is, as you said, it's the oh, hard science. I think other people in mathematics and physics now cough a, a little bit at that and like, ha, huh, yeah, biomechanics, hard science. <laughs> but I think this is where a lot of people, why biomechanics is so interesting because it is of course, it's engineering principles applied to the human body, um, but we still deal with a human body um, and not with a machine that we can just tune and exchange parts and it's running the exact same way again. If we exchange one part, like if we artificial um, implant, like knees, hips, um, joint implants, ideally we would like to move the exact same way as before if we think that movement pattern was healthy. That is the underlying assumption, um, but we, we're not there. Um, so we're, we're not just like a car. We can ex exchange bits and pieces and we're just fine again. But um, 
we move differently, we have to tune our body differently. Um, we ad we ad adjust our body, we adapt again, um, but in different ways. And I think sometimes biomechanists forget about that. <laughs> we do all the math and all the engineering stuff and all the physics and apply it and forget that the human body is um, an organic structure. We do change over time um, with the demands um, only because um, there is maybe another female next to me who's the same age, the same height, the same weight, um, but maybe is a professional athlete. She has very different demands um, that her body has to accomplish um, and that she places onto, like, onto every single structure um, compared to me, who does recreational um, sports or plays sports in a way that is, I want to go to work the next day, not having a black eye or not being limping. And the other person um, goes full out every day um, and says, this is my life. So I think we forget that <laughs> in biomechanics a lot. So it, it only, um, it's a good reminder, I think, to, to make sure that in the end, we want to apply most of these principles that we work with. And most of our research should go out back to the, to the other humans out there and ideally should help improve um, or at least serve, um, kind of broaden the knowledge base, if not having a direct impact, at least um, that we learned something from it. This does not work. Let's do it differently next time. That's also a great outcome. So we do now a lot of these mechanisms do not work. So yeah, let's do it differently in the next hundred <laughs> years. <laughs> I think that is great because if mm. we hadn't had the la like the past hundred years, we would now make the same mistakes or different mm. ones. And that's the idea, right? We can still make mis mistakes in the sense of that we can be wrong um, with our hypothesis that we say, oh, that doesn't work that way, but we learn something from it and then we do it differently the next time. And I think that's the goal from any kind of foot mechanism perspective. We had all our pitfalls in the previous like 100 years. So what do we do now? Hmm. It's, uh, I'm just being reminded there's a, a passage in a book um, I've forgotten the author. It's called Being Wrong. Uh, Sounds great. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 such a great book. Um, it originally came recommended uh, to me by the Level Up Initiative out of the US, and sort of there, you know, they had four key books to read as sort of clinicians, and and that was one of them. And I read it, and there was a, there's a passage in there that's that talks about medicine, and it's saying you know, when we are going through medicine or medical training, and I think it's exactly the same for healthcare, one of the things that we don't get taught is history. We don't get taught that why we thought that leeches were, were helpful. Why, you know, do we don't get taught about body humors and, you know, biles and all sorts of things. And it's good that we don't get taught that because it's, it's not correct, but it kind of leads to this false sense that, we've always known the answer and that we've always had the answer. It sort of leads to this, this concept of, of rightness that, okay, we're teaching you this and this is how the body works. And we've, and it gives us an implication that, oh, and we've never been wrong when we've taught things before. And it, I think it's sort of what they're highlighting. And, and I would agree is that we're missing the opportunity to sort of instill the case of well, we're going to teach you something and we think it's probably mostly right. And these are the reasons why, but, we could be wrong and you know in a hundred years healthcare could look 
vastly, vastly different. We might look back at, you know, cancer therapies and go, oh my God, what were we thinking with this radiation and with chemotherapy? You know, we now know that actually it's much simpler. We've just got these targets. And I think from a biomechanics perspective, you said exactly that, which is we now have this technology to be able to actually research things and not just have to do it off pure sight observation and go, oh, look, we moved the toe and the, the arch goes up. Okay. That must be, that must be how the foot works. We have the ability to, to, to look at it. So I think that's such a, such a beautiful sort of rounding out for our discussion as well as sort of coming full circle and, and, and thinking about its, its, its impact. Cause I think this, like I said, this is such a, a paper that's going to have a huge and should have a huge impact because it just pulls together everything that we've potentially been doing wrong for a hundred years. And, and, and like you said, not in a bad way. Um, it's, it's people with their best intentions. And now it's a case of going, well, let's, yeah, like you said, let's go somewhere else and let's make the next hundred years better. Yeah. And I think that is, um, that is one of the first things that, um, Dr. Ben Nick said to me when I did my master's there, he's like, be comfortable saying, I don't know. And this is what my current advisors, um, taught me in in an applied sense they're like only because i'm your advisor i don't know either <laughs> it's a journey <laughs> um so if i come with questions um let's explore together um i'm not i'm not the one having all the answers um but i have maybe some more tools so and now we do have more tools as a society in general because the technology is there so yes we have been wrong in the past, but also these people were fantastic scientists, to be absolutely honest. I have no idea how, for example, Higgs in the 1950s and everything, like came up with all these ideas about how the foot works and testing it to the best abilities at that time. That was, it's, it's so fascinating. Um, and now we have different opportunities. So let's use what we have and make the best of it. Um, and that might mean some of those previous mechanisms are considered wrong, but that doesn't mean that they should be just, you know, thrown out or something. Um, but yeah, they should be taught. And I think with a big but and with a big, but this is what we know now. And this is where we are at now. But yeah, the history is important. I think we learn from the history. That's why we shouldn't forget about it. It's true for life and it's true for biomechanics too. Like, um... <laughs> I think it's a perfect analogy for that. So yeah, um, being wrong is absolutely okay. And I wish that science would support that a little bit more, that mm. you are allowed to say, we have been wrong, but we're going to try this next because we learned something from it. And as long as that is true, I think we're on a really good path. Such a such a, a great comment, I think, to to wrap up our discussion. I'm very aware of we've, we've taken, a, well, I've taken a lot of your time. Oh, I can talk about it way longer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for, for coming on and having having a chat. Uh, it's been Thank you so much. Yeah, that was absolutely fantastic. No, I think it's I think it's a fantastic chat and I think there's there's so much for everyone to take out of it. I've taken a, a lot out of it and it sort of definitely helps um, yeah. It helps me think and, and, and talk about this sort of stuff so much more. So no, I can't thank you enough for your, for your time and your, your enthusiasm as well. Yeah, I think um, getting tired of feet, that's not going to happen very soon. <laughs> Every time um, people are making jokes about like, oh, you're a foot person. <laughs> um, I'm like, 
I'm I'm never really sure if I should go like, oh yeah, absolutely I am, because sometimes it you get a you get very awkward glances um, and, and looks. Um, but at the same time, I think yeah, I just love the way the foot moves. I love the way that the exactly. foot moves. Like that's it's, mm. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is the perfect sound. I think you don't know if it's a disgusted sound or a little bit of excitement in there too. You never know. <laughs> But um, uh, feet are fascinating because they carry us throughout our lives. And I think that's already something we have to be grateful for. As long as um, we can move and we can be mobile and we can, you know, go places and our feet carry us there, that is fantastic. So I like feet. <laughs> <laughs> so if, well, I mean, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to, to seeing uh, your, your PhD and, and when what you come out with after, after this paper, it probably sets you up. Um, yeah. <laughs> High with, uh, with people with high expectations. If people want to follow you, follow your research, where can they where can they find you? Um, I am on Twitter. Um, it's Anja A N J A, and then B like the honey bees B double E number six after. Um, I'm on LinkedIn with my name Anja Beeling. Um, email i think that is on the paper as well you can email me if you want to i try to stay away from other social media accounts just because it takes a lot of time and the phd also takes some time <laughs> so um, i'm focusing on the phd for now and not as much on social media <laughs> perfect well no i think i think that's the thing uh, one of the things I, i've found as well is that you know yeah a lot more researchers are a lot more willing to to chat than than, than we think it's not a locked away box so I've definitely emailed people over time um, and, and or just tried to talk to people and, you know, if there are questions and things. And, yeah, so if people want to get in touch, I'm guessing you're, you're, you're uh, wholly agreeing. Send that email. Absolutely. I think that is the biggest compliment. Um, whenever people reach out, whether it's criticism or compliments or questions, it doesn't matter. It means people engage and people are interested and you got their attention one way or the other. And I think that is the biggest compliment as a researcher who's stuck behind the computer a lot of times, um, that you're like, oh, someone else cares. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I take it. Uh, hopefully, I, uh, this does not lead to an inundation of, of uh, to, to the point where almost people care too much for you. I will just um, put a little like automatic reply in there. Or oh, forward you all the emails. How about that then? Yeah. If I can answer them anymore, you will get all all the other emails, all the overflow. New rule: as soon as it says your 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 paper, it's just that it gets forwarded to me. No, no. Um, <laughs> hopefully not. Well, thank you everyone for um, for joining another episode of the Rehab Podiatrist Podcast. Uh, if you want to follow the podcast or follow me, you can also find me on the Rehab Podiatrist, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, I am on threads. I don't know what, how to use it yet. Um, but yeah, if you've enjoyed the episode, reach out, let us know. If you've enjoyed Anya's work, reach out, let her know. I'm, I'm sure she'd appreciate this email being like, yeah, great paper. And uh, yeah, we'll see you in the next episode.